Good afternoon, podcasters from London. Hello and welcome to episode number 11 of our Banking Litigation podcast, uh, as well as our usual guest speaker, Kerry Morgan. Hello. Uh, we're joined today by Mark Tanner of our Banking Litigation practice. Hello. So this month we're going to start uh, with the topic of procedure. Always good for litigators to uh, keep on top of key developments, and we've got some pretty significant ones for you today. Uh, Mark, I think you're going to kick us off with a case on legal privilege. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So our first case is Adelsey versus Denzons, which is a helpful and important decision on privilege from the Court of Appeal. The high-level takeaway from the case is once privileged, always privileged, even if there's no longer anyone who can assert the privilege. I'll unpack that statement a bit more. As a brief bit of background, the claimants in this case were investors who had lost 6.5 million euros as a result of an allegedly fraudulent investment scheme operated by a Cypriot company. Because the company had gone bust and been dissolved, the investors sued the company's solicitors, Dentons, who acted for the company during the life of the scheme. The claimants then sought access to documents in Denton's client file. Unsurprisingly, Denton's claimed legal advice privilege over the documents, and the question for the court was whether the documents remained privileged, despite there being no actual company in existence to assert the privilege. The Court of Appeal approached this issue by looking at the underlying policy for legal advice privilege, essentially the principle that a client should be able to consult his or her lawyer in confidence. The court was firm on the point that once legal advice privilege attaches to a communication, it is absolute. There are no circumstances where privileged communications can be disclosed without the client's consent, even if the company didn't exist, so could never consent anyway. I suppose that makes sense. The key point there, of course, is that privilege attaches to the communication and not to the person. That's exactly right, John. The court was clear that privilege attaches to a document or communication. So privilege is not a private or personal right which can be exercised by refusing to produce documents. This meant that in this case, it didn't actually matter that the client no longer existed. Legal advice privilege attached to the documents and no one had waived the privilege, so the documents were still subject to privilege. Do you know, this sounds dangerously close to being a rare good news story on privilege, Mark. You've emphasised that the court was looking at legal advice privilege here. Did the court comment on litigation privilege as well? Well, that's an interesting point. The Court of Appeal expressly noted in its judgment that it was concerned only with legal advice privilege. So the decision may leave open an argument that the position is different for documents subject to litigation privilege. Interesting. Well, thank you for that, Mark. And as ever, if uh, podcasters, you want to know more about this case, there's a link in the show notes to our uh, blog post. Uh, The next case considers an interesting point on a procedural mechanism for group litigation in the UK. Uh, Developments in this area are always of interest for banks and other large corporates who could face claims by multiple claimants, so we thought it would be a helpful one uh, to highlight. Kerry, I think you're going to talk us through this one. Uh, Yeah, please. So, this is the case of Lloyd and Google, where the Court of Appeal has given permission for a claim to go ahead under the CPR 19.6 representative action procedure, and this was a reversal of the High Court's decision. I'm sure you'll get on to this, but would you be able to remind us briefly what the representative action procedure is all about? Of course. Um, So a claim can be brought as a representative action under CPR 19.6, where multiple claimants all have the same interest in the claim. And actually, it can also be used where there are multiple defendants too. So the representative action procedure is very different to the more commonly known way of bringing a class action under a group litigation order, or GLO. And that's because a GLO requires claimants to opt in to the proceedings, whereas the representative action procedure is effectively run on an opt-out basis. 
So unlike a GLO, which requires individual claimants to take steps to join the group action, under Part 19.6, there is no need for the represented class to be identified, let alone joined as parties to the action. That sounds like quite an attractive option from the claimant perspective. Yeah, indeed. But the difficult hurdle to surmount is that all the claimants must have the same interest. So looking at the facts to give a bit more context here, in in this case, the claimants are bringing a claim on behalf of a class of more than 4 million UK resident iPhone users. The claim alleges that the defendant tracked some of their internet activity for commercial purposes in 2011-2012. And the court considered this question in the context of an application to serve the proceedings on the defendant out of the jurisdiction. The Court of Appeal granted permission looking at various issues, but in particular whether the claimants had the same interest so that the claim could go ahead as a representative action. The Court's view was that the represented class were all victims of the same alleged wrong and had all sustained the same alleged loss, namely the loss of control over their data. And significantly, the claimants were not seeking to rely on any personal circumstances affecting individual claimants, such as distress or um, volume of data abstracted. So Kerry, I suppose with that concession, it was difficult to imagine what defence could apply to one claimant and not to all of the others. Well, that was exactly the thinking of the court. And I think one of the key points in the read across to a financial services context is that it's unlikely in most of the causes of action that we see for all claimants to have the same interest. Because usually there is some variation between individual claimant circumstances, particularly when looking at the loss that's alleged to have been suffered. So overall, I think it's an interesting case to note, but I don't think it will open the floodgates. Mm, Thank you, Kerry. Uh, I presume there's a blog post on this? There is indeed. A link is in the show notes. Excellent. Okay, thank you. Up next, we have a couple of cases on contractual interpretation. Um, I'm happy to take the first one. Uh, It's the High Court decision in La Misa against Synergy, uh, which looked at the contractual construction of an English law facility agreement. The, The court found that the terms of the facility agreement allowed the borrower to pause interest payments because of the risk that if it were to pay the interest, it would face so-called secondary sanctions under US law. And what's quite interesting is the court reached this conclusion, even though the facility agreement had no connection to the United States uh, whatsoever. It all sounds a bit surprising at first blush, particularly because English law does not generally excuse contractual performance by reference to a foreign law, unless it is the law uh, of the contract or the place of performance under the contract. So to understand the decision better, I'll highlight some of the key facts. The the borrower took out a £30 million loan and was required to make interest payments twice a year. After entering into the agreement, the lender became a blocked person under the US sanctions regime on Russia. Pursuant to the US-Russian sanctions, if the borrower made any payments to the lender as a blocked person, then it could be subject to so-called secondary sanctions. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a predicament. So how does secondary sanctions differ to primary sanctions? Is it just whether or not they apply to someone inside or outside of the US? Yeah, pretty much yes. Uh, So primary sanctions apply to US persons and conduct within the United States. In contrast, secondary sanctions seem to target non-US persons who engage in certain specified activities which have no nexus with the US. So in this case, the borrower either had to breach its contractual obligations 
or risk facing potentially ruinous sanctions for its business. And it's worth noting in this context that a significant part of the borrower's business required it to have a US correspondent bank account and the secondary sanctions could have blocked the borrower from maintaining that account. So as I've said, English law does not generally excuse contractual performance by reference to a foreign law, but the court noted here that the parties can contract out of this general rule, and that's precisely what it found had happened in this case. So in one sense, this is just a standard contractual construction case. The decision is based on the interpretation of the terms of the particular contract, and the outcome is specific to the facts of the, of the particular case. But this decision is significant for those dealing with parties who are at risk of ending up on a US sanctions list. It'll obviously be necessary in each case to look at the precise wording of the contract, but no doubt comparisons are going to be made to the wording of the clause in this case. And we have a blog post on the decision which looks at the wording in more detail. But at a high level, the clause said that the borrower would not be in default if the reason uh, that it failed to repay interest payments was in order to comply with any mandatory provision of law, regulation or order of any court or competent jurisdiction. A particularly striking aspect of this judgment is the court's approach to the phrase in order to comply. It's not clear to me that the legal nature of secondary sanctions means that they are something that must be complied with. Yeah, I agree actually, John. It doesn't sound like an obvious construction of that phrase at all. Indeed, but it certainly accords with the provision in practice so that the parties do effectively have to comply in order to avoid sanctions. Anyway, please do check out the blog post on this decision if you're interested in more detail. As I said earlier, it's bound to have carry across to similarly worded contracts. The next case in our deep dive is a much-awaited judgment of JP Morgan against Nigeria on the so-called Quinn's Care Duty of Care, Kerry, could you remind us uh, what the Quinn's Care of duty, uh, duty of Care is? Yeah, absolutely, John. So the Quinn's Care Duty arises in the context of a bank receiving and processing a payment mandate from its customer on an account um, in circumstances where that mandate was made by an authorised signatory of its customer, but where the instructions turn out to have been made fraudulently and to the detriment of the customer itself. And so this is the duty imposed on the bank to refrain from executing the order if and for as long as it's put on inquiry so that it has reasonable grounds for believing that the order is an attempt to misappropriate the funds of its customer, although it does not need to have proof. And Kerry, is that an objective test? Yeah, an objective test judged by the standard of an ordinary prudent banker. So as a reminder, we've only seen one case in which the Quince Care duty was found to have been owed and breached, and that was Singularis and Dyer in the High Court and then upheld on appeal. The Supreme Court judgment is due to be handed down this week, so we'll be covering that decision in our next podcast. But anyway, back to um, the current case, which is JPM and Nigeria. So in the main action, the government of Nigeria has brought a claim against the bank, alleging that the bank breached its quince care duty. And this was because the bank paid out sums held in Nigeria's depository account, which was held with the bank. And although the instructions to pay out were given by an authorised signatory of Nigeria under the depository agreement, Nigeria asserts that those payments were part of a corrupt scheme uh, by which it was defrauded because the monies were used to pay off corrupt former and contemporary Nigerian officials, um, government officials, and used to make other illegitimate payments. However, one of the bank's arguments is that the parties excluded the quince care duty under the terms of the depository agreement. So the bank applied for strikeout or reverse summary judgment on this basis, 
but it was refused at first instance, and in its recent decision, the Court of Appeal has agreed. Interesting. So what are the key points we need to know? So there are lots of many interesting points, but the three really interesting points coming out of the Court of Appeal's judgment are these. So firstly, the court gave some guidance on the scope of the quince care duty itself. So the court said that in most cases, the duty will require something more from the bank uh, than simply pausing and refusing to pay out on the mandate. And to carry on that, did the court give any guidance as to what that something more might be? It sounds very vague to me. Uh, Yeah, well, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. So the court very consciously stopped short of saying what that something more might be, saying that it will vary according to the particular facts of the case. And in this case, this was a question, the court said, for the trial judge. Uh, However, this gives us a very little practical guidance for the time being. So what we do know is that the quince care duty will involve both a negative duty to refrain making the payment, as well as the positive duty to do something more, although it's difficult to say at the moment what that might be. If I recall correctly, that explanation of the scope of duty sounds broader than it was articulated by the High Court. Yes, John, good memory, you're absolutely right. So the High Court describes the negative duty not to pay as being the core duty with a positive duty to make reasonable inquiries. Now, the Court of Appeal did not find it useful to describe some parts of the quince care duty as being core and some parts as being subsidiary. And of course, the Court of Appeal has now described that positive duty as the nebulous requirement to do something more rather than limiting it specifically to reasonable inquiries. So the Court of Appeal's formulation is arguably broader. The second interesting point in this judgment is the Court of Appeal's confirmation that it is possible to exclude the quince care duty, but on the facts, it had not happened in this case. The court emphasised that the wording would have to be sufficiently clear. So while it may be possible to exclude the quince care duty, it might be somewhat commercially unpalatable. And there were three points. What's the third? And the third and final key takeaway uh, that came out of this judgment is uh, whether the quince care duty was inconsistent with express terms of the depository agreement. So for this one, it's probably better to read the blog post, but essentially the court held that the relevant clauses were not inconsistent with the duty. And this was important because the quince care duty arises either by way of an implied term or a tortious duty. So if there were inconsistent express terms in the contract, then there would be a good argument to say that no term should be implied or duty found. So this is not the end of the matter because, of course, the case now needs to proceed to trial to determine whether the quince care duty was owed by the bank and breached on the facts of this case. But the decision here is an interesting example of the recent run of cases shining a spotlight on the quince care duty of care. And it highlights that this is a real risk area for financial institutions handling client payments. Well, thank you, Kerry. Um, And as you've noted, we do have a blog post on this. The link is, as ever, in the show notes. Uh, Now, Mark, you're going to round us off with uh, an update on future developments. Uh, I believe that DBAs are up for reform. Yes, that's right, John. Uh, New draft regulations on DBAs, or damages-based agreements, were published recently. The old regulations were widely criticised and DBAs weren't really being used all that much. The aim of these new regulations is to try and address some of the more problematic areas, and there are quite a few of them. Would you like to pick up a couple of the key changes? Yes, absolutely. So firstly, hybrid DBAs would be permitted under the new rules, so a lawyer could recover a reduced fee if the claim fails. 
There was previously a ban on hybrid DBAs, and this was seen as a factor in the load take-up, so this would be a welcome change. And an interesting one, given our discussion earlier on class actions. The new draft regulations preclude DBAs for representative actions under the CPR 19.6 procedure. The logic behind this is that these actions proceed on an opt-out basis, as Kerry mentioned, and this is similar to opt-out class actions in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, where DBAs are also prohibited. These are all just proposals at the moment, and the deadline for providing feedback is the 15th of November. As always, there's a blog post on this, if you would like some further detail. Well, thank you for uh, that, Mark. That's an interesting update on a controversial area. Well, um, look, thank you all uh, for joining today. Thank you in particular uh, to Mark. Thank you. Uh, and to Kerry, as ever, for hosting. You're very welcome. Uh, we brought you to all today, Procedure, Privilege and Payments. If you've got any uh, questions arising, then don't hesitate to drop one of us a line. Otherwise, have a look at the show notes. They're very uh, full and contain uh, wider descriptions of what we've been talking about. But thank you all very much for joining. And until next time, gang warily, podcasters. <laughs>